Roxy's in here. I'm just gonna let you know right now. If she if she meows, it's staying in. You know, it's, she's a chaos agent. I don't know, you hear that? That was sort of a defiant meow <laughs> as she left. Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, we hear from reporter Michelle Rendells on the governor's new unemployment task force headed up by former Assembly Speaker Barbara Buckley. After that, you and reporter Jackie Valley talk with two Washoe County teachers about their first few days back at school after the school district there opted for a controversial in-person return to the classroom. And at the end of the episode, intern Tabitha Mueller talks with Kyle Howell of Recycled Records, a record store in Reno, about business during the pandemic. But before we get to the rest of our show, I sat down with our healthcare reporter, Megan Messerly, to break down the newest numbers and latest developments of the coronavirus pandemic. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. All right, Megan. So as always, let's break down some of the numbers. Uh, now, we're recording on Friday today. It's August 21st. We're recording in the morning. So with all that, what do the numbers look like when it comes to the coronavirus in Nevada? Right. So as of uh, last night, we haven't gotten any new numbers this morning. We were at about um, 64,000 cases statewide, just a little bit under that. And we're at 1,175 deaths. We had some of the most um, significant single day totals of deaths reported this week, um, which we kind of expected to see because as we've talked about in previous versions of this podcast, you know, we saw cases go up and up and up um, in the month of July, then that started to decrease and we've seen a sort of decreasing trend in cases. But because deaths take some time to catch up because, you know, the infections that are happening today, you might might take a little time to get sick and then go to the hospital. Um, So we expect those to lag by about five weeks. So we haven't started to see deaths go down in the same way that we have seen new cases go down. So we're keeping an eye on that to see where that trend goes um, in the next couple of weeks. But so far, deaths have been um, increasing in the state. Okay. I want to ask quickly about testing. Now, you've had a couple stories uh, this past week about testing and how the state's changing or maybe some of the challenges the state's seeing. So let's start with that last point. What have the challenges been to actually testing people in the state of Nevada? Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about the testing process, there's just a lot of different parts of the process that can be fraught with delays. You think about, um, you know, someone actually coming down with the illness, right? It might take them a couple of days to decide they want to go get tested. And then um, they decide to make an appointment, but maybe there aren't slots available. And once they get the test, how long does it take for those results to come back? And then once those results are actually processed, how long does it take them to actually get back to the patient? Does it have to go to a doctor's office first? Does the doctor have to call the patient? Um, There are a lot of points uh, at which there can be delays in this process. And so I, I wrote this story last weekend looking at this problem and talking to some folks who had experienced um, delays, including one man who waited 18 days before or between when he was tested and when he actually received his results, he was positive for COVID-19. Um, and by that point, you know, he, he kind of already knew or sort of assumed that he had it and had been staying home uh, because he, you know, he said he was just too sick to go outside. But you think about it, you know, 18 days, that doesn't allow you to contact trace in the way that we would hope. And, and even talking to other folks who, you know, waited a fewer amount of days, um, it's still, you know, anywhere from three days 
five to six days or in, in this sort of ballpark and in an ideal world, this whole process is really happening in the span of 24 to 48 hours, right? You are sick, you're immediately able to go get, go in, get tested same day, you get your results back, you know, in a matter of hours or maybe another day, you're called immediately for contact tracing, all your contacts are called immediately. Uh, this process is supposed to happen pretty fast, but at least in, in July, this process wasn't working out the way it should. And I should mention that July was when we were really seeing the significant increase in cases, the sort of testing infrastructure. A lot of people were seeking out testing. Uh, the health districts were backlogged with contact tracing. They just weren't able to get to everybody on their list. The Southern Nevada Health District is still working through their backlog from July cases. They still haven't called everyone who tested positive in July. Um, and it was just sort of this intense uh, pressure on the state's testing and contact tracing infrastructure. And things are supposedly getting a little bit better now. The, the testing turnaround times from the state have been more in the ballpark of, of two days, um, give or take, depending on um, depending on you know the lab you go and and visit. So things are supposed to be getting a little bit better, but we'll keep it, be keeping our eye on this, especially as cases continue to go down. Sort of see how the testing infrastructure is holding up. Okay. Well, knowing what we know then about the, these testing bottlenecks and, and the infrastructure that is available, uh, there's been this increased interest in wastewater as a means to sort of extrapolate out how large a community spread might be. You did some reporting on this. What did you find? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So in, in Southern Nevada, Northern Nevada, and then in Elko, there have been these wastewater surveys uh, going on for a number of weeks, some dating back to at least in Southern Nevada, they started testing the first week of March, and they were actually able to see the presence of COVID-19 in the wastewater um, tied to that first case that we saw on, on March 5th. I think their first sample was on March 9th, and they saw COVID-19 in the wastewater, which confirmed to them that yes, you know, we do have COVID-19 spreading in our community. So the really interesting application of this. There's been some effort to say that there are X number of viral particles in the wastewater and then extrapolate that out to say, okay, there's 2,000 cases in the community or 5,000 cases. But it's sort of more of an art than a science right now because there's still a lot that's not known about how many copies of viral particles someone sheds at different points in their illnesses and does it vary from person to person. So really the best application of this is sort of just as a, as a barometer for, for officials to be able to look at these numbers and see, okay, are we seeing the levels of viral particles in the wastewater going up or are they going down or are they staying the same? It gives us a sense of what's going on in our community. So for instance, if we saw case numbers going down and we saw viral particles in the wastewater going up, that would suggest to us that we're missing a large number of cases right? And that there's maybe not enough testing going on, but there's something going on that's, uh, you know, showing more particles in the wastewater than we're seeing through our, our testing. So it's another data point for folks to look at. The problem is that there's just not a lot of funding in this area. So a lot of local jurisdictions are looking to how can we secure extra funding? Is there federal funding? Are there extra local dollars that have been awarded through the CARES Act that can be diverted? So there's a lot of research going into this just to figure out sort of what are the broader applications of these wastewater surveys moving forward. Mm. And I guess on a last point, and this is not related to testing, but there's been some conversation about whether or not the state should reopen bars. And now the task force for the coronavirus here in Nevada took a look at that question yesterday. What did they decide? Yeah, it was really interesting. So both Clark and Washoe counties, um, in addition to Nye County for essentially all the areas outside of Pahrump, they made a request to reopen their bars. It was really interesting in Washoe County, um, health 
district officials actually argued that uh, opening bars might be sort of a solution to some of the problems that Washoe County has been seeing, which is they've seen a lot of these house parties and a lot of cases clustered at house parties. And so their hope was, okay, if we open the bars, we can give people a safe space to go and socialize. They'll be required to wear masks. Um, there'll be more precautions in place. You know, there's be uh, 50% of capacity, you know, fire marshal codes. You could sort of restrict the number of people in any one room, whereas they don't have jurisdiction over these house parties and trying to ensure that there are only a certain number of people in a house and they're all staying socially distant. So there was some hope that um, that this would sort of be able to help control that, at least that, that kind of spread. Uh, the task force, however, did not buy that argument. They were concerned that this would just, you know, create another place where COVID-19 could spread, that, you know, not all the house parties would necessarily just, you know, transfer into bars, um, but that you could have, you know, people going to bars and people still socializing in, in house party settings. And so, you know, their concern was if we're talking right now about trying to, you know, lower the spread of COVID-19, we've seen the case numbers going down, but we don't want them to go back up. Um, you know, their concern was making sure that, you know, we're not doing something that contributes to that and actually contributes to the spread of COVID-19. So the task force um, denied the proposal to reopen bars in Clark and Washoe counties. They said, you know, we'll revisit the issue in a couple of weeks, depending on, you know, sort of where we're at. Um, they did, however, approve reopening bars in all of Nye County except for Pahrump. Um, county officials there made the argument that most of their cases have been clustered to Pahrump, so places like Tonopah, which is not anywhere near Pahrump, shouldn't be punished uh, for, for the cases really being clustered in Pahrump. So state officials did buy that argument and allowed um, bars to open there, but just not in the two urban counties. Okay. Well, as always, if you're interested in more on the coronavirus in Nevada, you can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Messerly, where she tweets out daily updates about the numbers. And you can read her weekly coronavirus contextualized stories on the NevadaIndependent.com. Megan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. As Nevada's unemployment crisis heads into its sixth month, some claimants are still in limbo in a system swamped by more than a million applications for benefits. There's been a lawsuit, there's also been new legislation passed in a special session. And still, many say they're stuck in an endless cycle of computer glitches, confusing messages from the state, and questions about whether they're eligible for benefits they've been waiting for since business shutdowns began in March. Our reporter Michelle Rendells takes it from here. Two weeks ago, Governor Steve Sisolak announced he was creating a strike force to get to the bottom of the delays. At the helm is Barbara Buckley, the former top leader of the Nevada Assembly, who now leads the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada. In her day job, Buckley helps low-income people help themselves through legal problems. That includes everything from teaching people their rights and immigration proceedings to helping defend themselves when they face eviction. But she said she was getting plenty of calls from people in dire straits because they're unable to get an unemployment claim resolved. Yes, they're coming in to everybody, mm -hmm. right? News, legislators, elected officials, they certainly came here as well. One of those people is Will Cannon, a personal trainer who had been just getting started in his career in Las Vegas when the shutdown hit. He's now been denied in the two separate unemployment systems, but he thinks that's an error. With Pua, I went through a second appeal with regular unemployment, they told me no. Now I'm going through a second appeal with Pua. And it's like, I don't understand why you're telling me no. All my paperwork adds up. It, it lines up to everything you're asking. I gave you my 
proof of employment through my bank statements. I showed you separation papers from my job. I gave them all my IDs. I gave them social security cards. I gave them everything they asked me to upload, I've uploaded them. Cannon has been unable to find a job as a trainer even with gyms open again. There's just not the demand for training sessions, and many gyms have closed altogether. He's also looking for work as a security guard, but hasn't landed a job yet. He says his focus is on trying to support his wife right now, by making her meals and helping however he can. She still has a job, and is the sole breadwinner in the household right now. I'm here, you know, some mornings in tears, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, literally in tears, man, because I don't, I, I, I can't help my wife, you know what I mean? And, and she's struggling herself, trying not to get sick, because she's the only one that's bringing in some sort of income in the house. When I sat down with Buckley for an interview this week over Zoom, she spoke highly of the workers who have been trying to process claims as part of the Nevada Department of Employment Training and Rehabilitation. But she said what her new task force can do is bring a fresh pair of eyes to the situation, including expertise from the private sector, to evaluate which processes are working and which aren't. Now, I told some of the employment security people, look, you've been inside the house fighting the fire for five months. Mm -hmm. You're exhausted. Uh, You know, reinforcements are here. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can just bring a different way of viewing it um, and a private sector way of doing something. The team includes the chief compliance officer of the Cosmopolitan Casino and a former top IT executive from the multinational company Siemens. Still, Buckley said she hasn't discovered a silver bullet solution to the backlog. There are issues with computer systems for both the traditional state-paid unemployment system and the system that administers Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, or PUA, the federal program for gig workers and self-employed people. There are also issues with those systems being separate at a time when many workers have both traditional jobs with a conventional employer-employee relationship as well as gig work on the side. And then there's a large number of fraudulent claims that still hasn't been quantified. It's not like so much an individual cheating as much as organized fraud. Mm -hmm. Meaning someone has filed a bunch of claims using the identities of someone else. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a a one-off, you know, kind of -of run-of-the-mill street kind of criminal. It's somebody with a lot of IT expertise who's part of a data-stealing ring. So what's the solution? Two weeks in, Buckley said her strike force is trying out new methods of verifying claimants' identities, with hopes of weeding the phony claims from the legitimate ones. There's also a new fraud chief charged with getting to the bottom of those bad claims. She's enlisted the help of hundreds of people who work in the state's welfare division to cross-train as unemployment officers and serve as a force multiplier. They'll be trained to specialize in certain common issues and help resolve hang-ups on large batches of similarly situated claims. And she plans to work on an online dashboard that will offer the public more information on how many claims are pending, approved, and denied. It's still unclear how many legitimate claimants remain unpaid, because it's unclear how many of the total claims are illegitimate. Still, 
she's upfront about the fact that some of those struggling unpaid people will never be paid. That's because they're ineligible under the very specific rules of the unemployment programs. It's an unfortunate situation for many people who held out hope that they could tap into this financial safety net to weather the pandemic's economic effects. But if people are not eligible, Buckley says she at least wants claimants to get closure so they can move on. You know, there's a lot of people who have applied who aren't eligible. Mm. They kind of think, well, everybody's getting money, right? Yeah. They have no UI wages, right? They have no, no, uh, they've never received W-2. They haven't worked in the year and a half. And some of the people don't have, they're not a gig worker either, right? Mm -hmm. So they kind of just think because I'm not working, can I get unemployment? Mm -hmm. Or there wasn't a real, there wasn't a COVID reason for their 1099, you know, loss of work, right? For the Nevada Independent, I'm Michelle Rindels. If you want to read more about Michelle's interview with Barbara Buckley, you can find the story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Hi, I'm Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined by Jackie Valley, and we're talking to Will Harper, a high school teacher at Spanish Springs High School, and Jenny Martinez, a fifth grade teacher at Donner Springs Elementary School. We're talking to them about their first few days back at school up here in Washoe County. The school board has decided to have students return to the classroom, which is in contrast to Clark County down in Las Vegas, which is currently distance learning. So I'll uh, hand it over to Jackie to ask the first few questions. Yeah, so first of all, thank you both for being willing to join us. Uh, I know the first weeks are hectic back at school, but I was hoping you could each start off by, first of all, reiterating where you work and telling me how your first two days went so far this week. I guess I'll go first. My name is Jenny Martinez. I am at Donner Springs Elementary School. The first couple weeks have been a little different. I actually got changed from teaching kindergarten to teaching fifth grade digital learning. It was a fast turnaround because we found out in the midweek and then we were ready to teach on Monday. Monday in Washoe County was canceled because of smoke. So that was interesting. So really we've had two days to kind of teach with kids. My two days were a little bit different than some of my coworkers since I am doing distance learning. I still go to the school so that I'm there to help with giving breaks to other teachers or doing extra duties because one of the goals from our administration was to get teachers at least their 30-minute break. So school's been going okay. Today we also had another smoke day. So really we've gone two days and we're off again. Yeah, it's been a bit of a disjointed start to the school year. <laughs> we'll dive back more into the digital side of things in a second, but I'll let Will give his take on the first two days. Yeah, so again, I'm Will Harper, and I am a EL teacher at Spanish Springs High School. Definitely a whole new reality that we're dealing with. I'll start out with a couple positives about this reopening. One, just seeing students in person. Uh, there's just no substitute for the way that you can build relationships in person versus uh, Zoom, at, at least in my experience. And two, incredibly small class sizes to start out with, which is the best way for us to support our students. So those are the positives. I would say it's been very awkward 
for staff and students. And I think there's just going to be this feeling out period where I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I talked to some of my students and asked them how they felt being back in and, and whether they were going to stick with in-person learning. And I would say I probably had about 60 to 70% of the students that were there, including I already had to do a prep sub because we don't have all of our positions filled in our building. The students were saying that they weren't sure about being there. They felt awkward and that they were probably going to look into going to distance learning. So it's, it's again, just an adjustment period. And this smoke thing hasn't helped us try to get back to, I feel like, you know, if we can build a routine, that might be our best chance at, at making this the best possible scenario for the students, which is what we're focused on. Do you guys think that you're going to go the whole year like this? Or do you think that at some point the, the schools will, will have to close? You know, I, I think at first I really didn't understand the, the matrix or the metric, excuse me, that the board was using and the district was using to kind of answer some of those questions. And, you know, they've, they've given us some with positivity rates for 14 days and cases per 100,000 for 14 days, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. You're saying that you're going to expose people for 14 days to conditions that will eventually close you down. doesn't make a lot of sense. And I will tell you this, already in our school, we've had a couple of students that we got alerted that were in outbreak status, which means they haven't reported to the school yet but they were positive. My wife told me about three students that have been, that were at Reed High School and attended already this week who tested positive. And the paper said that at this time, the students are out, but no other teachers or uh, students have been asked to stay home. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it's going to be dictated by what this virus does and nobody can predict that. And also I'm having a hard time predicting what the people who are making these decisions kind of where their heads at and, and what they're what they're doing to make these decisions to be honest with you and so will now that you're you're back in the classroom with the kids i wanted to ask you a couple questions about that experience you mentioned small class sizes so first of all like how many students are actually in your class so i my position is i do something called el mainstream support so el is taken on different names esl ell so it's students whose first language was not english so what I do is I provide support all day long. So students come in with things from their other classes, and then we look, is this a language issue that you're struggling with? Is it content? Is it both? So I normally have about 15 to 17 students in a normal year. And after losing some to distance learning, there's an A-B split. So the first day, I had three to four students in my class, which was incredible because that gives me the opportunity to work with them. I think the most I'm going to have in one period is six. So again, those are positives. And, and what's your observation with mask use so far? When in class, great. I'll be honest with you. I sat in my class and, and my window faces where the buses are unloaded. And I saw an actual staff member who had their mask on standing two feet from two students who did not have masks on and have a five minute conversation and never ask them to pull their mask back up. They're allowed to have their masks off when they eat. They're allowed to have their masks off at lunch. So a lot of roaming around without masks off. You know, the first thing I walked in, I saw kids sitting on a bench, sitting on each other's laps. So no real social distancing. You know, I think we're trying again, I think it's going to take some training teaching them 
what the expectations are and, and uh, seeing if they'll do it. And again, going back to the other question, I think that's going to dictate how long we can stay open by following all these mandated social distancing and masks. But in the class, they're great. It's just, you know, they're teenagers. And, and uh, when they're on their own, they're masked down. So, Jenny, can you kind of explain, you know, how it's been doing social distancing learning? You know, I mean, are you at the school? Or are you at home? And then are you just doing this all through, through Zoom or through Teams? You know, and, and how have the students responded to that, especially in fifth grade? Um, I'm at the school. So we're still reporting into the school because uh, I wasn't really someone who asked to do digital learning, kind of just placed there. So I don't have a medical condition or anything that would keep me from going to the school. It's been a different situation just because every the information came out so quick to parents that there was kind of like a backlog of things that had to happen and a lot of confused parents. In Washoe County, we have to use Teams and Microsoft programs. So just getting them logged on to Teams with the constant changing. So I started with 17 kids on my roster and that's gone up to 25 and there's constant kind of switching back and forth. So when the roster is changing in an infinite campus, which is our main place where we have everything, then passwords change and then parents can't get on and it just kind of goes in a circle. So it's been confusing, but it's starting to, to work out. And Jenny, do you have a sense of, of your students who opted to do distance learning? What was the, the reasoning behind the family's choice to do so? Most of the parents have just said, you know, they wanted to keep their family safe. They were concerned too. A lot of them have um, multi-generation households, so they didn't want grandparents to get sick or, you know, aunts and uncles to get sick. One family I talked to has roommates, so there's more than just their family in the house. So if they're all going different places, plus the kids are going to each to a different school, it just was a lot of exposure that they feel comfortable doing. And so, you know, with being a fifth grade teacher, are you attempting to teach the curriculum on a parallel track with the other fifth grade classrooms? I am. So we are planning together and basically they're getting the same information. It's just I'm doing all of my teaching over Teams. So we're trying to have the kids, well, my kids have been on for two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon with the middle part of the day kind of for lunch and then doing some independent work. I think that could be an interesting case study of sorts to see how the learning progresses because obviously in the spring, you know, I think there was an acknowledgement that it was such a sudden experiment that not much actual learning occurred. But here we'll, we'll be able to track how it's going with your group, who's really dedicated to it, versus the kids coming into school under not-so-normal circumstances. <laughs> how confident are you, uh, you so far, based on what you've seen, that your kiddos will be able to stay on track? I think they'll be okay. They've done a really, really good job. At first, I was like, okay, I'm going to start with an hour see if they can stay focused for that long on a computer screen. And the first day we did it, it just kept going on. And we did the whole lesson and I stayed on so that they could ask me questions while we did some math problems and did some reading and different things. And I've been pleasantly surprised at how well they're doing. Will, do you, do you think it's difficult with uh, like the social distancing and masks to teach like you normally would, or have you found that it's pretty much business as usual? 
in terms of like the in-person teaching? Um, I would say my smaller class sizes even is hard. Like, I mean, you can't, I'll be honest, there was no way even on the first day, like they were like trying to hold up things and ask me questions from six feet away. And I'm like, I can't see what you're trying to show me. And so I definitely was within closer than six feet. The mask wearing, you know, that was, I'll be honest, the first day was the longest that I had worn a mask sustained. Like I wear a mask everywhere I go. I wore a mask when I traveled this summer, but not for, you know, seven hours straight. So that was hard. It's hard for the students. They're constantly fiddling with it, trying to pull it down so they can at least have their nose exposed. But I don't see how I'm going to, especially in my position where I'm trying to help students with the things that they are struggling with, how I'm not going to be like right there in small groups with them, definitely within six feet. I'll do my best, but it's, it's going to be hard. It just kind of goes against every, all the things that we know are good teaching, right? You can't mm -hmm. just stay away. And so it's, again, an adjustment. If, if I can come up with some way to, to do that, I will. But I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm sitting real close to my students, and, and that, that's probably going to be the case unless I can figure something else out. Do you guys feel supported by your schools and by the district? I feel pretty supported by my actual school. They've kind of taken a different stance, like we're still doing six feet, not the three feet. They were really focused on making sure that we still stayed safe, even if those, the PPE and everything from the district wasn't there, they were going to provide it. The district, I feel, was just, un it, I don't think they were ready for all of this. I don't really... Like, I don't want to, I, I feel like they're doing the best that they can, but I, I don't think they were ready to start for sure. And a lot of the reasons why the start was even successful was because of all these people that are working behind the scenes. And really, I mean, we worked so many hours last week to get everything ready for kids. But if we didn't do that, it would have been a total mess. What about you, Will? I would say... I'll just be candid. I feel more more support from my admin in the building, and um, not I'm underwhelmed by the district response to this on many levels. I also would say that coming to teaching later in life, and why I got into teaching, what I like about it. Quite honestly, it's been the same before the pandemic as it is now. Meaning, what I love is I love when that bell rings and I get to shut the door. And I get to spend time with students and what the district and quite honestly, oftentimes what the admin is saying or doing or trying to do in support really doesn't matter. You know, I feel like they have so much on their plate. The more that I can just not be interrupted by what they're trying to dictate or direct and the more that I can just be treated as a professional and spend time with students is better. Um, you know, we had some district people in the building the day and it was just kind of like, well, great. You're here to make an appearance and we see you. Nobody came into the classroom directly to see what the first day was like. Nobody came in to say how's, how to go for you. Nobody came in to say to my students, hey, we got your back. This is going to be great for you. Nice to see you. So it's, it's just been kind of underwhelming from the day that we said that we were going back after having a, you know, I sat through all nine plus hours of the board meeting where they decided to reopen and the the health professionals that gave their reasons why we shouldn't and for them to just kind of go, ah, all right, well, we don't really like what you're saying. So we're going to find some other health professionals that 
kind of fit our narrative about sending you back. And uh, I'm just I'm just kind of underwhelmed with the state of education in Nevada as a whole. And uh, yeah, so just a little bit frustrated. And I guess just to wrap this up, there's a lot of talk of, you know, it not being normal this year. But I think everyone probably knows that education had its flaws even before this pandemic began. So when we think about going back to whatever normal may look like once there's a vaccine or whatever, what do you hope maybe we've learned from COVID or we can adopt that would make education better overall moving forward? I think just realizing the change that's happened in the education world and what teachers are now being held responsible for is a lot different than it was years ago. And in Nevada, I think there has to be some discussion on our funding. It's way too low. And I know that like with the union and different people, different teachers, like our goal is just to get an average funding, which isn't a lot, just match the national average, which would help out in so many ways. We talk about being data-driven and having these kids get help early, and we can't do that without the funding. Will anything come to mind for you? A lot, and I think this is a great question and something that's consumed a lot of time for me since this started. And I remember thinking early on, way back in March, that we had an opportunity as a nation to really reevaluate priorities. And you know, on a larger level, we could look at all the economics, the way that we govern our healthcare systems, all those things, priorities, all of that. In terms of just education, you know, I've, I've spoken about this in, in other forums where I really believe that this has shown a spotlight on some things that are opportunities, such as funding, such as class sizes. You know, if, if you want to beat teachers and educators over the head with hammers like, oh, well, you have to be responsible for social and emotional well-being got to provide food. You've got to provide safety. You have to do all these different hats. And then somewhere down the line, you get to education as the reason why we need to be in person. I think then you owe it to the students and the staff to then fund those things and actually put your money where your mouth is to make the best opportunity to do all those things. Because we do all that. We provide all those services and childcare so that the economy can keep going. Without teaching, there is no childcare for the economy and there's no people being trained to go into those positions that are gonna make the economy. So if that's the case, and those are the things that we're being beat up over, then I hope those same people that are saying all those things are turning out and gonna be just as vocal in the next legislative session to force our, our legislators to fund in a way that matches the, the rhetoric of the importance of education on all those levels. Well, that's probably a perfect ending spot. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. We wish you well as the year continues in whatever form it may take. Thanks, guys. And now on to our last segment with intern Tabitha Mueller up in Reno, who is talking to Kyle Howell of Recycled Records about business during the quarantine and what records are popular right now. So today we are going to actually be speaking with the one of the owners of Recycled Records down here in downtown Reno. And we featured him in a previous article from one of our Nevada Interrupted series about reopening during the pandemic. And so today I'd like to welcome... Kyle 
from Recycled Records. Awesome. And so, Kyle, tell me a little bit about the story about how Recycled Records started and your connection to records. Oh, it started back, oh, geez, I want to say 78. I'm hoping I'm saying 78, 79. And then it was purchased by the former owner. His name was Paul. And he had the store for 40 years, 42 years, something like that. And then we picked the store up in October 1st of uh, 2019. And we've been running it since. And so what have you been seeing from customers during the pandemic in terms of what music they're listening to, what they've been coming in to kind of peruse or buy? People are very excited that there's a record store open in Reno right now. They're really just excited to come down and support us. They're really excited to be able to physically buy a record instead of getting it off the Internet. As far as what people are buying, it is music wise. It is all over the place. I mean, uh, new records, old records. You can go from death metal to country. It's just people just want to have music and people want to shop right now. And what are some trends that maybe you're seeing in music genres? Like what seems to be selling very quickly off of your shelves? Basically classic rock, the most part. That's been our bread and butter since day one, I believe. And it's just anybody is, everybody's buying classic rock, uh, kids, adults. It's not the only genre that's selling, but it is the biggest genre. I mean, the Beatles, I mean, we can't keep Beatles records on the shelf. It's insane, the popularity of classic rock. What your parents used to listen to, I guess. I don't know how to put it any other way. Or kids are just into it, or... Music's not very good nowadays. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Controversial so, um, decision there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had to think about that. But uh, it's just, uh, that's just what people want is uh, they just want the classic rock. It just, it is what it is. I mean, I have to buy new records by these old artists just to keep them in the store. Do you sound a little bit surprised about that? No, no, no. I'm not surprised at all about buying new records to keep them in the store. But if we get a stack of Beatles records and I put them on the wall, they're gone that day. It doesn't even, doesn't even make it a day. Wow. And so what are, you know, when you're thinking about purchasing more records, what else do you look for? We look for a lot of metal and we look for a lot of hip hop or rap, whatever you want to call it. And that also is very popular stuff as for records. We just, as a used store, don't see a lot of it come in from customers. So we have to always buy that kind of stuff new. And it does move really well. Is Yes. What about listening to a record is different maybe than listening to a CD or another you know a digital download off of spotify all right that is a very common question i still really don't know the answer to that one it's a preference with people and it's also people still do enjoy buying a physical copy of something so they have something to hold in their hands they have something to to read while they're listening to the record and just having a physical copy of something and owning it rather than getting a digital download well and i have a record player and kind of listening to music it's interesting because you just it, it kind of sounds different. I don't know how to describe it. It's got that crackly, poppy sound that people are really looking for nowadays. You know you've got something that is original and pretty cool rather than getting a digital file. How else, you know, how else have things been going in the store for you since we talked last talked? Oh, yeah, boy. The last time we talked, we were basically, I was still sitting at home doing eBay for the store, I believe, is the last time I talked to you. And now that we've been allowed to open, the hours have... um gone up a little bit we're we're not open all day long every day still because there are a lot of people out there that you know don't want to come into the public and there are employees that you know that's just the way it's going to be for a while but the store is doing excellent we couldn't be any happier and then uh last question for me is what have you been listening to lately oh geez okay hmm what did i just buy boy i wish i would have thought of that before you asked me i buy so much stuff what did i buy today all right today for example i purchased um, an old dolly parton album 
I purchased an old Merle Haggard album. I even got the new X album. I bought a, a new uh, new Melvin's album. So I'm all over the place as well. And I just bought a new Frank Sinatra album. So music genre is everywhere with me. I love Frank Sinatra. He has that gorgeous voice. Yes, he does. He's my favorite of the pack. <laughs> And what would you maybe recommend for people maybe not who are not familiar with records or not familiar with a purchasing a record? What are things to look for? Oh, we get that question all the time. There's a lot of new people to this um, collecting of records. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, why is this record this much and this record's this much? And I'll pull it out and I'll show them the difference in, you know, a little scratch here, a little scratch there, or this record's beautiful. It doesn't even look like it's been played. And I mean, not that that scratch record is not going to play, but you're going to get more of the authentic poppy sounds out of it. We always recommend you listen to the record. I mean, you don't want to buy something you don't like. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, you mentioned that there was a, you might have a record sale coming up. So Record Store Day is going to be the 29th of this month and we're in August. We're not exactly sure how it's going to run this year, but anybody that's familiar with the Record Store Day knows how we work it. So it's just for independent stores, and we just want you to come in and see what you can pick up. There'll be tons of new stuff in here. It'll be great. Well, thank you so much for letting me talk to you today. Always welcome. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Will Harper, Jenny Martinez, Michelle Rundells, Jackie Valley, Megan Messerly, Tabitha Mueller, and Kyle Howell for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast, you can also email editors at thenvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. You can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.